Welcome, dear listeners, to another tale of murder, scandal, and crime from Mississauga's darker side. Today's case is one of crime and punishment, but is it justice served or justice severed? A young man's body is found dumped in a deserted ditch. Stefan Svirda, a Polish immigrant, was immediately fingered for the job, but evidence was scant and circumstantial from the very start. He barely spoke English, if he spoke it at all, and he couldn't keep his story straight. The detectives, the prosecution, and his own lawyer couldn't get a grasp on the facts. Was Svirda a convenient scapegoat or guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt? You be the judge, dear listeners. From the case files of Heritage Mississauga, this is Mississauga Confidential. Sunday, May 3rd, 1909, Village of Arendale. Robert Kelly, Alan Hardy, and Alexander Allen were ambling through the bush of Faskin's farm. They were joking around, ribbing each other, and laughing at any little thing the way young boys do. It was that golden time, after church and before school, and the three friends were basking in the carefree Sunday afternoon, soaking up the freshness and warmth of spring. One of them spied a brilliant red leaf in a trench a short distance away, peeking out from under some brush. He had never seen such a vibrant red leaf before. It would go well with the flowers they'd already collected. As the boys drew closer, the smell hit them. It was a smell so powerful it awakened the primordial fear of disease and rot that had helped their ancestors survive. Their laughter stopped, and yet curiosity drew them closer to the ditch. Inside the ditch was a pile of leaves and tree branches. They could make out that the red belonged not to a leaf, but a fragment of a scarf. They cleared some of the brush away and found the source of the scarf and the smell, the decomposing corpse of a man. County Constable John Crozier arrived to secure the scene and stood watch over the body. Samuel Faskin and his hired man, Thomas Brooks, took it upon themselves to search the property. They found clothes torn off the body strewn around the bush, a drained bottle of whiskey, and a valise belonging to the dead man. The bag was still locked, but empty. A large slash down the side accounted for the vacancy. Fearing disease, the hired man promptly burned the valise, destroying key physical evidence of the crime. Dr. Marshall Sutton, the coroner, arrived and made a preliminary examination of the body. The dead man's injuries were not the result of an attack by a wild animal or misadventure with a train, but the result of several blows to the head by a blunt object likely one of the many heavy branches at arm's reach in the bush. The dead man, however, had been bludgeoned elsewhere, dragged to the ditch, hastily covered up, and left for dead. He'd been there for more than two weeks. From correspondence found on the dead man's body, police were able to identify the victim as Olek Lutik. 
he was seventeen, not much older than the boys who'd found him. He hailed from Galicia, today a part of Poland. He'd left his little corner of the Austro-Hungarian Empire to see the world. His travels led him to Rotterdam, then New York, finally ending in Toronto on April 12, 1908. Life in Hogtown was harsh for the young man. His first stop was the Front Street office of W.D. Davis, a labor contractor. Lutik's brother was a laborer on the Grand Trunk Railway, and Lutik wanted in. But there was no work to be had, and Davis sent the boy away. With his prospects up in smoke, Lutik found himself living rough, a stranger in a strange land. He was picked up by police for vagrancy and spent two nights in jail. After his release, Lutik wandered the streets of Toronto until he finally sat down on the sidewalk and cried. Lutik was roused from his lamentations by a familiar, comforting accent, speaking a familiar, comforting tongue. He looked up and saw salvation in the form of a broad-shouldered fellow Galician named Stefan Svirda. The older man took Lutik under his wing and brought him to a lodging house on Adelaide Street, run by Stephen and Anna Vaselina. Lutik and Svirda bunked together in Svirda's room. The next morning, the two hopped a Mimico-lined streetcar. Their destination? Port Credit to find Lutik work on the fruit farms in the westward counties. Before they left, Lutik hawked his concertina to Vaselina. The squeeze box netted the boy a whole dollar. The next day was Good Friday. Svirda returned to the Adelaide Flophouse alone. He told the Vaselinas he'd found Lutik employment at a Clarkson farm and was given $1.75 as a finder's fee. Svirda handed the landlord a dollar he owed on his rent. Then he went to the post office and sent $5 to his pregnant wife, Annie, in Rochester, New York, for a train ticket to Toronto. On Easter Sunday, two days after Lutik was last seen alive, Annie arrived on the train from Rochester. According to Mrs. Vaselina, the hard-up Svirda became a sudden spendthrift and bought his wife a brand new Easter outfit. A couple of weeks later, Lutik was found in a Clarkson ditch. A number of witnesses remembered seeing two strangers traveling through Port Credit on Thursday, April 16th. William Pratchett met the two at Arthur Wilbur's Inn. He viewed Lutik's body and positively ID'd him as the man from the inn. The hunt was out for Lutik's companion, and it didn't take long for the bloodhounds to pick up severe descent. On May 12th, Detectives William Greer and John Miller burst into Svirda's room at his... <clears throat> On May 12th, Detectives William Greer and John Miller burst into Svirda's room at his Adelaide abode. He was still in bed and didn't put up a fuss. He was arrested and taken to police headquarters on Court Street. By the afternoon, he was aboard a train bound for Brampton. When the trial opened at the Brampton Assizes in November, there remained a distinct lack of physical evidence tying Svirda to the murder, but a mountain of circumstantial evidence that established both motive and opportunity. At the trial, Crown Attorney George Tate Blackstock argued the prosecution side 
and E.G. Morse argued for the defense. Justice Riddell was on the bench. Mrs. Artell Manley, a neighbor of the Faskins, saw two men together at the entrance to the bush on the night of April 16th as she was driving home with her son. Their clothes matched Lutic and Sverda's. The defense challenged. Could she be sure it was Sverda and the victim? It was two men standing in the moonlight, seen from a moving wagon. Yet when pressed by the defense, Mrs. Manley was sure the men she saw were Sverda and Lutic. Albert Weir, a CPR fireman, testified that he saw Sverda washing bloody clothes and hands in a gutter near the tracks on the Saturday morning after the murder. Later that afternoon, at 1 p.m., he saw the same man walking along the tracks towards Toronto. The man hid his face as the train passed. In court, Weir dared the defense to bring on witnesses to contradict him. He was positive the man was Sverda. The chain of evidence against Sverda was circumstantial. Sverda had left Toronto with Lutic. They'd been seen in Clarkson together. Sverda was seen washing blood from his hands and clothes, and when he returned to Toronto, he had cash to spend. Nevertheless, these links were dangling so tantalizingly close together that it was easy for the police, the prosecution, and the jury to fill in the blanks. Sverda's shifting stories didn't do him any favors, and his ability to provide a clear explanation for what happened with Lutic were hindered because of his difficulties with the English language. When he was arrested, Sverda claimed he deposited Lutic in the company of one or two or three Jews. Which Jews? Sverda didn't know. Then he insisted he left Lutic with a job on a Clarkson farm. Which farm? Sverda didn't remember. Either Sverda couldn't get his story straight, or something was being lost in translation from the suspect's mouth to the detective's ears. At the trial, Sverda testified that he brought Lutic and another acquaintance named Mike to Sunnyside Station on the afternoon of April 16th and saw them off in the direction of poor credit. Who and where was Mike? Again, Sverda didn't know or couldn't say. After leaving Lutic and taking the train back to Toronto, Sverda said he went to a drinking establishment on Agnes Street. For the defense's case, two men, Joseph Sokolsky and Freddy Soroka, testified that Sverda was in the saloon with them on the Thursday night of the murder. The gauzy recollections of a couple of barflies, however, didn't hold much water with the judge or jury. It was not the airtight alibi Sverda needed to eliminate his opportunity to murder Lutic. The defense also argued that Sverda's motive for murder was weak. Lutic was not exactly flush with cash, and if Sverda killed him for profit, it was for peanuts. Though the shadow of doubt hung like a specter over the trial, the jury brushed it aside and quickly returned a unanimous verdict. Stefan Sverda was guilty of the murder of Oleg Lutic, with a recommendation for mercy. Justice Riddell ignored the recommendation and sentenced Sverda to hang on February 11, 1909. 
a week before his execution, the Court of Appeals heard the appeal made by T.J.W. O'Connor on Svirda's behalf. It was in their hands alone to save Svirda from the gallows. With less than 24 hours before his scheduled execution, the Court of Appeals made their decision. They would not intervene. The execution would go on as planned. In Brampton Jail, Constable James Young, who had sat on Svirda's death watch for the four months after the trial, was with Svirda when he was told his appeal was rejected. Now, Svirda, Constable Young said consolingly, you will certainly have to die. Why not confess before you meet your God? If you killed young Lutik, why don't you say so? Svirda looked at the constable, the man with whom he spent most of his waking hours. Constable Young had taught him English, and Svirda had come to see him as a friend, perhaps his only friend. I know kill that boy, Svirda told him. I go to my God, not afraid, because I know kill that boy. In the hours leading up to the execution, Father Jaziak, a Greek Orthodox priest, was on hand to prepare Svirda for his death. Another visitor, John Robert Radcliffe, arrived at the jail to do the same thing, but not in the spiritual way. John Robert Radcliffe was the public executioner. Radcliffe began his official career in 1892. He was the first professional hangman in the Dominion of Canada, and he was good at his job, knowledgeable, fastidious to a fault, and an expert with knots. Through his work, he was able to travel all across this beautiful country, performing executions, Amri Usque Admare, from sea to shining sea. As the years wore on and the executions piled up, Radcliffe bore witness to the darkest impulses that public hangings awakened in people, himself included. At the 1899 hangings of Cordelia Poiret and Sam Parslow in Montreal, a mob of thousands stormed the jail, determined to witness the deaths of the condemned couple. They tore away the black linen screen that hid the dangling bodies from view and drank in every second as the life drained out of them. The burden that society placed on a single frail man's shoulders took its toll on Radcliffe. He drank heavily. His wife left him and took the kids. In 1902, he was beaten by an angry mob after performing an execution in Hull, Quebec. The psychological torment of the men and women he killed on behalf of justice and the citizens of Canada haunted Radcliffe until his death in 1911 from cirrhosis of the liver. On this day in 1908, justice demanded the execution of Stefan Svirda. After a slow, solemn walk from his cell to a hidden corner of the jail yard, Svirda climbed the scaffold and stood atop the trap door. There was a gentle snow falling. Radcliffe set to work with practiced efficiency. He tied Svirda's feet together. He handcuffed Svirda's wrists. He placed the waiting noose around Svirda's neck, and he pulled a hood over Svirda's head. Radcliffe then took his spot next to a bolt that would release the trap door below Svirda's feet and checked his watch. 
All the while, the priest continued to whisper words in Polish to Svirda. At exactly 8 a.m., Radcliffe released the bolt. The trap door swung open, and Svirda fell 11 feet into the pit dug up below the scaffold. The force of gravity on a falling object, interrupted by the opposing force of the hanging noose, snapped Svirda's neck immediately. The death machine performed efficiently and effectively, exactly as designed. Dr. David L. Heggie was on hand to monitor Svirda's waning heartbeat. After twelve minutes, the doctor was confident he heard nothing, and pronounced Stefan Svirda dead. It was the first execution in Peel Jail. Radcliffe released the body from its bindings, and it was placed in a simple wooden coffin. Stefan Svirda was promptly buried in an awaiting plot in the jail yard. Thus ended the life of Stefan Svirda. Society demanded an equal payment for the debt of murder, and got it paid in full. If the guilt of Stefan Svirda is the unimpeachable truth of what happened to Olek Lutik, we can all sleep soundly knowing that the scale of justice and the world balance themselves. But if it's not balanced, then what happens? After his arrest, as he was awaiting trial in Brampton Jail, Stefan Svirda's wife, Annie, gave birth to a daughter. Less than a month after his execution, Anna Svirda found the seven-month-old baby dead inside their St. Patrick Square tenement in Toronto. The little girl died from starvation. Her death wasn't a postscript to the story of Oleg Lutik and Stefan Svirda. It was its ugly, inevitable conclusion. For the poor, the lonely, the oppressed, and the desperate actors in this narrative, the world was always a crooked, skewed, and perpetually unbalanced place, one that carelessly heaped on their shoulders tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy, a society paid in full, and then some. And so we close the file on another tale of murder, scandal, and crime from Mississauga's Darker Side. Like what you heard? Click follow to subscribe. This podcast is written by Brian Ho and Nicole Mayer. Research by Brian Ho, Nicole Mayer, and Matthew Wilkinson. An adaptation of this story by Deanna Natalizio first appeared in the Heritage News. Video content produced by Brian Ho, Nicole Mayer, and Ryan Parks. Mississauga Confidential is a Heritage Mississauga production. Heritage Mississauga is a not-for-profit organization dedicated to researching, recording, and celebrating the history of the city of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Your support helps create programming just like this. For more information about Heritage Mississauga and to become a member, please visit heritagemississauga.ca and follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Until next time, dear listeners, this is Mississauga Confidential, signing off.